of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 1304 for the week of Monday, June 28th, 2021. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Greetings and felicitations, dear listeners. I can't wait to get this whole thing started. We got a lot to talk about here. Oh, yes, we do. And welcome as well, Kat Robinson. Pleasure to be here. I should correct myself always. It is Dr. Cat Robinson now, and I want to make sure that <laughs> yes, we continue to emphasize that. Yes, it is. Well, you know, I just actually <laughs> got my my diploma in the mail, and they damaged it. So I'm a little I'm a little salty right now. Oh no! <laughs> All right, so uh, dented Dr. Cat Robinson. Welcome then. <laughs> Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. We have a lot to cover, and we will start with some busy times right now at the International Space Station. And while there's been a lot of launches that have happened, there is one that is set to happen that I think we need to start right off the bat with. And this is a launch that is 14 years in the making as the newest International Space Station module, the NALCA module for Roscosmos, is now finally packaged up inside its payload fairing, awaiting a launch very shortly. Yeah, Sawyer, this thing was actually supposed to launch back in 2007, but uh, um, if if I were to go through the, the dreary chain of causality and, and the whole all the problems that, that this particular module has kind of run into... Over the past few years, uh, I think we could probably run a whole show of, on that uh, itself. Uh, I know Anatoly Zak has got a really good uh, article about the whole the whole module and its and its uh, sort of the perils of Pauline process. No, you can say that three times fast. Um, that it has gone through. So, if anybody wants to go ahead and check that out, go to uh, Russian Space Web. Uh, but, um, he, but again, uh, this, this, the whole module is, is really a multi-purpose module. It, it, it is a combination lab, airlock. I believe there's, uh, there may be some living quarters on board. Somebody's going to have to check me on that, but I think I heard that. Um, and it will be a definite welcome addition to the, uh, Russian side of the, uh, of the International Space Station. Uh, so, but yeah, this has been a long time in the making, and uh, this this goes ahead and replaces the Piers docking module, which has been on the International Space Station, I believe, since about 2001. Uh, the uh, Progress 77 uh, will go ahead and, and dispose of uh, Piers when it leaves the station. Uh, I believe the uh, the module has already been deactivated. I remember uh, hearing that on the... Uh, 
um, on the uh, EVA coverage uh, over the no, this past weekend. Um, so that's all all taken care of, and all uh, really progress needs to do is just go ahead and and separate that from the International Space Station and. And progress will deorbit the pier's docking module when it's still attached, and they'll do their own destructive reentry. But uh, this is an exciting, uh, exciting moment for the Russian program. It expands their abilities on on the International Space Station, and uh, I'm sure that the uh, the Russian Federation is looking forward to getting that uh, that module active and and running. Um, and I'm sure it will be contributing to. Uh, to the uh, the experimentation and the investigations on the Russian side. Exactly. And, uh, I mean, it has been quite a while since we have seen a new part launched to the International Space Station, too. If I'm correct, uh, it was probably, was it the uh, the beam modules, the most recent? Yeah, I think so. Um, I'm, I'm trying to dust off my, my memory cells there, Sawyer, but, uh, yeah, I think you're, you're, you're absolutely correct. Um, the, uh, uh, the, uh, Bigelow beam module or the, the, the test of the, uh, the expandable material, uh, that that thing is made out of was, might've been the, the, the last addition that I can recall that was made the last significant addition. And of course that was supposed to just simply be a, a, a short term test. And the, uh, the ISS program managers said, Hey, it's working out. So why don't we just keep it? And, uh, and, uh, cause I remember the initial plan was just to keep it on for about a few months and then, then, you know, dump it overboard to attach it. But, uh, that's not the case anymore. They're going to hang on to that as a, as a closet, so to speak. and, and see what the you know if, if it continues to perform well, and so far so good. Uh, the only other addition that I know that is that is planned is of course the uh, the Axum space edition that is uh, being looked at, and uh, uh, the idea too is after the International Space Station uh, is uh, they decide to go ahead and get rid of the ISS. The Axum modules will become sort of free flyers, and they will be their own uh, space station, and uh, thus the beginning of uh, commercial low Earth orbit operations begins. So uh, that's that's the only thing I can think of. Swear that you're right on that. Yeah, I believe so. Because then otherwise, it's uh, Axiom, Nauka, and then the uh, the Kordaki module that comes along with it that will replace Piers. Right. So. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a long time coming, and it's nice to finally see that. And again, that should be coming up sometime later this year, likely in the summer or fall. And uh, that's not the only thing that's launching to the International Space Station. We've had a few launches recently, uh, one of them being a Progress 78 mission. As you mentioned, Progress 77 already up there, which will help deorbit peers. That mission launched on Tuesday June 29th here on the East Coast. That was early dawn hours in Kazakhstan. And uh, normally we don't really mention the progress launches, but I did want to bring something up with this. And I know it's weird bringing this up this early in the show, but years and years ago, we always talked about how the one thing that NASA didn't do well was 
you know, boost themselves up, toot their own horn, however you want to describe it, build themselves up. And I think Russ Cosmos may be showing them up a little bit. If anyone <laughs> has seen any of the recent Russ Cosmos live streams, they have been live streaming all of their launches. And in a way, it feels very SpaceX-esque with their commentators, the graphics that they have on screen. Uh, because of the technology that they use to record it in Russia, when you see it on NASA TV, if it's not from a NASA TV camera, a lot of times it's in non-HD or the 4x3 square shape as opposed to widescreen 16.9. Theirs is almost 4K quality, and this launch, they had a drone flying during the launch. The only other launch I've ever seen use a drone live, not playing it back later, but live was some of the suborbital test flights that we saw from uh, New Shepard. But it was stunning, and I think they're putting NASA to shame in some ways with their webcasts. Yeah, well, okay, I, I saw, I, I was watching the uh, the webcast from NASA on, on yesterday on the 29th when I was watching that. And I remember, you know, sorry, when we were doing the uh, the pre-show, I had mentioned that that had to be one of the loveliest launches I had seen in a very, very long time. And the only yardstick that I had for it, honestly, was when, you know, you and I were down there for uh, uh, EFT-1, uh, which was just absolutely amazing uh, because that was a dawn launch. And pretty much this progress launch was also a dawn launch, but it was just you know, severe clear in Kazakhstan uh, in the skies over there. And you could actually see so much activity from the booster. It was just absolutely stunning. The, the sky was just this, you know, orange and purple. It was just absolutely lovely. And uh, we were able to, to track the, um, the vehicle right through, uh, you know, stage two. And, um, then you go ahead and and then you went ahead and mentioned the uh, the Rose Cosmos feed and asked me which feed I was I was watching. I said, well, I was watching the NASA feed. I said, you've got to check this out. And well, Sawyer, you you my jaw dropped um, because quite frankly, some of the images that uh, we got on the um, the NASA feed were not the same images on you know on the Rose Cosmos feed. They were very much more the images that we got. On the Rose Cosmos feed, were very very robust. We had three, you know, we had a cutaway of three views rather than just the single view that we had on 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 NASA television. As far as the booster ascent was concerned, very very elaborate, very very well done. Yes, I mean Sawyer, the graphics were uh, right out of you know SpaceX's book. Quite frankly, um, I think that's probably because of some of the things that have been going on between Roscosmos and SpaceX, quite frankly. Um, they're trying to outdo them. Uh, but, uh, yeah, Sawyer, you win. Um, I think the next time uh, there is a, um, you know, progress launch or I guess even a, a crew launch, uh, I may I may go ahead and um, 
uh, stop by the Rush Cosmos feed. And as you put it there, Sawyer, you can probably pick up some Russian there too. <laughs> If, if you know what what you're if if you know what you're looking at, so you know it, yes. it'll be more of an education for me too to try to brush up on you know on on trying to acquire uh, uh, yeah, the Russian language there because you said you're you're picking up some Russian too as, as you're uh, I'm learning this. a few little phrases here and there. Uh, while most of the commentary is in Russian, the graphics on screen alternate between Cyrillic and English, so it's. You can still understand what's going on, even if you don't speak Russian. And I, one of the first ones I saw of theirs was a crew launch and then a crew landing and recovery. And again, stunning images, great job with it, things that you don't normally see in the feeds. So I, if you haven't, I highly recommend checking out a Roscosmos launch. And if you haven't seen one, just check out their YouTube channel and skim through it. And there's some amazing imagery. Yeah, I, I got to give them a tip of the hat. They're doing some remarkable, remarkable stuff. So, um, I, I've I've got to go ahead and and you know give a nudge to uh, to some of the PAOs on on the NASA side, and maybe you might want to go ahead and put some nice little telemetry, you know, graphics in the corner someplace, like they've started uh, doing in their set. joint webcasts with SpaceX. Yeah, exactly. And maybe you might want to do that with, oh, I don't know, uh, OFT2 um, or um, or even, dare I say, um, uh, later on, uh, Artemis 1. So uh, it, it'll it'll be, uh, you know, I, I really want to see if, if NASA does respond. Yes. Oh, yeah. No, the, they've got some work to do. But again, I mean, not knocking NASA TV a grateful oh, it exists and their services and there's some amazing people working behind the scenes to give you that footage but for a russian launch there's nothing like the russian feed yeah i mean well it's called tough love so what can i say <laughs> especially really want... coming from russia who was not known for the longest time for their transparency yeah exactly and 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 here we are they've they've really got some you know bleeding edge graphics up there I'll, you know again they're it is very very you know, dare I say that you're 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 correct in your analysis when you say SpaceX esque, because SpaceX has has always had those those graphics, and uh, Rocket Lab also has the same kind of thing there too. And um, it's it's kind of I'm hoping that 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 level basically gets adopted. Agreed. The new international standard of webcasting. Amen. Uh, regardless, though, you know, we still get some fantastic views from other launches, like uh, we had the Northrop Grumman NG-15 launch of the Antares and the Cygnus spacecraft to the International Space Station recently as well. Yeah, the, um, well, we had uh, the um, SS uh, Catherine Johnson has been, had been up there since, I guess, what, um, it was launched on February 20th, which was kind of appropriate given who the, uh, that particular Cygnus was, was named after. Um, both of those individuals had a bit of a tie. Uh, um, both, uh, John Glenn and, uh, Catherine Johnson, um, so uh, it was kind of appropriate for uh, for that particular vehicle to 
to launch on that day, and I believe it docked with the International Space Station two days later. So it had been on, on board the ISS for some time. Uh, the neat thing about Cygnus is that it is a disposable spacecraft uh, in that you can go ahead and, and throw stuff that you don't want and uh, and be rid of it. Um, so it's it's kind of a, a a nice thing to have in in the quiver too. In you know everybody applauds um, SpaceX and it's a and the uh, the the new cargo dragon and the whole cargo dragon concept because it gives you down mass and that was something that the ISS really needed. Uh, but you also need to take out the trash and and get rid of stuff that you don't need and don't want too. And uh, Cygnus does provide that kind of service. So um, uh, the uh, uh, the vehicle um, departed um, also um, yesterday, Tuesday, uh, June 29th, um, around, uh, around uh, I believe it was the departure was about 12, 12, 12.30, something like that. Um, and uh, it still has a job to do. Uh, it still has to launch uh, about five CubeSats on board. That's one of the other things Cygnus can do. Um, it do. It serves not only as a as a great CubeSat launcher, but it also can alter orbits to go ahead and launch your CubeSat. So if you need your CubeSat launched at a specific orbit, it can go ahead and elevate the orbit and fire the 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 CubeSat off and then lower again and you know, send another CubeSat off on its merry way on that, that particular orbit and so on. So it's a rather, you know, really capable vehicle um, in in that respect. Um, but I believe that that, uh, that job is going to be done um, sometime this week, and I believe the deorbit maneuver will be at um, the end of the week. So probably around... Um, I'll say July 3rd, July 4th, I think they plan on, on deorbiting uh, Cygnus for a destructive reentry. But uh, again, this is a, a, a good service that, uh, um, well, first uh, Orbital Sciences, then Orbital ATK, and now Northrop Grumman uh, provides um, for the International Space Station. Um, I think both, you know, the need to have, you know, the down, the up and down mass that, uh SpaceX provides is, is really, really needed, um, but also the ability to, um, you know, get rid of some things that you don't need because, you know, you're dealing with a, a small compartment. Yes, the uh, ISS does have the, the living volume of a, uh, what, a six-bedroom house, but uh, if anybody owns a house, you know, things have a tendency to accumulate, <laughs> And if you can get rid of some of that stuff and and uh, and uh, you know just get it out of your life, then then that's that's probably a good thing, and you free up some room and for for other other storage needs. So uh, so again, um, the uh, SS Catherine Johnson is is off on her on her way, and. Uh, uh, that mission should uh, should end by uh, by the by the end of this particular week. So by the end, probably by by the time this this program goes live, 
that should be uh, that mission should be uh, over and done with, and we'll probably be looking at another Cygnus mission. I don't know. I guess sometime in uh, in October. Yeah, I mean it's it's nice to have that option of two vehicles, one with down mass, one with uh, in a way a kind of trash can on the way down to get rid of all the garbage. But yeah, you know, it's it's nice to have that versatility. Yeah, I mean the the other thing too is is I'll, I'll mention really fast that the uh, uh, the Cygnus pressure modules are are being going to be leveraged for uh for gateway so if, if that tells you anything so um uh you know they're they're fairly robust uh so you know i, I again um it, it it's just a, a grand service to to uh to have in your in, in your pocket there and in addition to Cygnus, we also have Crew Dragon with the CRS-22 mission that recently docked to the International Space Station. And not only did it carry lots of important science as well as supplies for the crew aboard the space station, but the most important thing that it probably carried was actually in its trunk, in the unpressurized section. And it rolled up nice and neat. And that's not what you normally think of when you hear of solar panels. But yes, it brought up some roll-up solar panels so that the ISS can finally get more power for the first time since those sol- the original solar panels were attached. Yeah, so here are those, um, those solar panels are there for uh, future power needs. Um, but also to, to really, really augment the International Space Station for some of the power demands that are coming. Like, for instance, the uh, the new Russian uh, module that will be uh, docking shortly. But uh, also for uh, the aforementioned uh, Axum space modules and, and so on. Uh, this really, really will go ahead and, and get the, uh, the ISS... Uh, power up to up to uh, really really some good levels uh and add a lot of flexibility to uh to future plans for the uh the orbiting platform i was about to to say that the uh future plans that it's really great to see sort of this type of investment in the in the national space station because we do know that eventually you know nasa will leave it as an operating partner so we hope to have some sort of commercial platform that will come into the international space station and it's just you know fantastic to see any sort of upgrade that that hopefully expands the possibility for the iss to continue as a commercial platform as a laboratory anything beyond the the civil agencies operating lifetime yeah, that's that's a, a a really nice way of putting it, Cat. Um, the uh, uh, that that's essentially what what the the those those panels are really really for. They had a little. Uh, they were not without their growing pains getting them installed. And if if every you know, it, it's just like you know, do, having your own DIY you know do it yourself project at home. It's always that one screw that gives you a problem or something like that. And that's essentially what happened. On the the first uh, installation EVA uh, between uh, Thomas Pesquet and uh, Shane Kimbrough, uh, there was also an issue, a minor issue, with uh, uh, Kimbrough's um, spacesuit. Uh, those EMUs, um, they are showing their age a little bit. It was a a little problem with the DCA. There, it's basically a a a, a screen that shows basically the status of the suit, and it just went out for a while. And unfortunately, troubleshooting that 
um, cost the that particular EVA, the first one, about two hours. Uh, so uh, they really didn't get to everything they really wanted to do. Um, and so they had to go ahead and cut that one, you know, short. So they had the... They finally got their act together on the on the second EVA, um, and so the uh, the first uh, uh, set of these rolled rolled up uh, uh, rolled up solar panels were able to deploy, um, and then the uh, the second channel was a breeze uh, as compared to the first. So they they've got the first set in now, and I believe the the they want to go ahead and get the the next set in there. Um, Quite, uh, I think that's going to be the next step in in August. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, to go back a little bit further, Sawyer, with the history of the, that whole thing, um, I recall even on this program we, we talked about that, and uh, at the time, Bill Gerstemeyer was saying that uh, those uh, you, you really want to go ahead and figure out how much time you have um, on the on the station, you know, how much what what your lifetime, what your life expectancy is on board. Uh, or should I say, should the life expectancy of the, of the facility? Because uh, there are things you need to replace and or 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 to augment in some way. And uh, Gerstemeyer was saying that uh, the the uh, panels up there right now, uh, the the main ones, um, they kind of resemble Texas stop signs. <laughs> You know, just absolutely, really, really pitted and and all that. So the so they were trying to figure out a way to go ahead and augment or replace those things. And uh, lo and behold, this this solution is the one that uh, was they came up with. Uh, I will also say too uh, that these um, um, irosas, as they're called, uh, are also planned for gateway. So in a way, this is sort of a technology demonstration too. So if everything goes well with with the uh, technology demonstration on the ISS, and everything is happy, you know, everybody's happy with the the power outputs that um, this particular uh, that that the um, uh, panels are putting out, uh, it will be leveraged on on gateway. So this is this is. Yeah, so it, it's basically uh, uh, solving two problems with with one one shot. So uh, it it'll be very interesting to see what what happens with uh, with these panels, and hopefully they're able to uh, go ahead and and supply the ISS with 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 the power needs that it really 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 needs for the future. Exactly. And if I recall, I may be mistaken, but Gene, I believe it was you and I, it may have been at the Parker Solar Probe launch. We sat down with someone who showed us what those rollable solar panels looked like and functioned. Am I mistaken or? No, you're not mistaken. I I kind of remember that. Um, I mean, I don't know if the, if these panels, if the lineage of these panels may actually even go back all the way back. Um, and I'm, I'm, I could be dead wrong in, on this, but I remember an experiment that flew on STS-41D. It was the first mission of the Space Shuttle Discovery. 
and it was an un it was a, a a packed up solar panel that was was packed up in in a small canister um and i'm wondering if these these panels are just slightly related to the panel that uh was was demonstrated on on that particular uh mission but Sawyer I'm kind of thinking yeah um I remember seeing something like that um on uh at Parker and uh, uh there was some talk about about that too and this was one of those side discussions that uh um you know I guess us press folk get to see and sit in on um, for the mission, and I'll, I'll have to dig that up because I, if if we we were there, well, we we would have had recorded it. And yeah, uh, I, I remember we were in someone's office, and we were just—I at least was amazed that here we are, and there's this piece of solar panel that's rollable and floppy, which you don't normally think of when you think of solar panels on a house or on a spacecraft. Yeah, and I think too that's the beauty of these things. They're very, very, they're they're built to be resilient. That's one, and two, they're built to be very, very portable. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, I, I, again, I mean, it's it's just a, a a bit of a minor miracle on these things, and uh, we'll, we'll we'll see how they work on the International Space Station. And again, this is a tech demo, so if this works. Um, it will be, you, you know, it looks like it's going to be used on Gateway. So, you know, it, again, it, it's, uh, uh, there's a lot of technical de- demonstrations going on on ISS uh, with reference to Artemis and with reference to the Gateway program. And this is just uh, uh, one, uh, one of those tech demos uh, that uh, we'll, be, uh, we'll be looking at. Exactly. And uh, right now, the International Space Station is not the only space station with crew on board. You may recall last episode we discussed the launch of the Chinese space station and their first module. Since then, they had launched a resupply mission, and now there are Taikonauts on board. Yeah, there's actually three. Um, they launched just, uh, I believe, Sawyer, as we're recording this, they've been up there, what, about a week, I think? Uh, I remember watching the coverage uh, on Chinese television, and a lot of the rituals were literally copied out of the uh, the Russian playbook, if you will, <laughs> Right down to uh, uh, the Takanots signing the door at the at the quarters, and um, you know, presenting themselves in front of a in front of the military, saying that yes, we are prepared for the launch, and the the military officer giving them the the blessing, and off they go, um, you know, to uh, to uh, on the bus to uh, to the uh, to the launch pad um, out there in the Gobi Desert. But yeah, a lot of the traditions that they've they've decided that they're going to use for uh, uh, for crew have have really taken out of the uh, have been really really taken out of the Russian playbook. I don't think um, one tradition in particular was, um, but uh, um, it has to do with pulling over and um, uh, you know. 
relieving oneself. Yes, exactly. My attire. Um, I haven't, you know, but um, uh, that uh, that has not been the, uh, you know, but other than that, or, or watching the, and I forget the the name of the film that uh, Gagarin had uh, had watched before his uh, his flight. Uh, how dare I? Um, because it, it 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 again it it's it's a it's a Russian tradition to watch this particular film the the night before the flight and uh, um, because that's the same movie that Gagarin saw. So um, a lot of the but again a lot of the rituals have been taken out of the uh, the Russian playbook. They have different. Uh, I mean, the White Room though is just absolutely incredible um, uh, on the. Um, on the Chinese uh, spacecraft, I mean, it's it's it it literally is you know it just literally surrounds the the vehicle as opposed to you know having a swing arm like we do. Um, but uh, uh, the television cameras were there, which kind of surprised me a little bit. Uh, I I did not, given the fact that. Uh, the Russians had been very, very. I mean, the Russians. The Chinese had been very, very tight, tight-lipped around the uh, the progress of uh, of their uh, you know robotic craft, but um, they uh, they they did a very good job, I thought, in 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 broadcasting to the world essentially the the mission of uh, of this particular Shenzhou uh, uh, spacecraft that docked with the. Uh, Docked with the space station, they actually even even provided coverage of the docking too. So, uh, uh, which to me was a bit of a shock. Um, and of course, uh, they you know are showing the world what their their space station looks like. Um, right now, I think it's just down to one module, um, but it's all bright white and clean and all that and everybody you know the comments were oh wow it looks so modern and my thought is well well yeah i mean you know it's it's a brand new vehicle um it still has that new spacecraft smell if you will as opposed to the international space station which has been there for you know what 20 years so uh yeah of course it's going to look gorgeous um it's like you know Comparing my 15-year-old Toyota to a you know, you know one that just rolled off the line, but uh, uh, to um, to just go ahead and get the point across too, I believe the Chinese station they will have the same uh, working volume once it's completed as the old Mir space station, um, as opposed to the uh, to the ISS, which. Uh, uh, is much larger than than the mirror uh, station was. So, um, Russia, I know, had been in some negotiations with China for docking rights, or they wanted to. I, I don't know if that's going to go anywhere, because again, the the Chinese uh, uh, station is in a different orbital inclination than um, than the uh, ISS is. And uh, I'm not too sure you can get there from from uh, from Baikonur, but you might be able to do it. According to Russia, they might be able to do it from uh, Vasoshny, the uh, the uh, spaceport that is within uh, 
Russian boundary proper. And uh, they think they could probably launch crew, if they had to, from the Soyuz launch pad at uh, Coro French, French Guiana. They're, they're examining that if this proposal goes through to have uh, Russian cosmonauts uh, dock with um, with the Chinese station. Uh, but yeah, this is a, 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 a nice, exciting development for China. Um, I know a lot of people here were, you know, there was a lot of gnashing of teeth and all this and uh, saying that, oh, yes, you know, that they, they've got a space station now. And I'm like, well, you know, so do we. <laughs> you know, we, we've been at this now for, for how long? So, you know, my thought is, well, we have another player on the field. Good. Um, but, uh, you know, what if are they going to be able to go ahead and, and share a lot of the stuff that they do with the rest of the world? I do know that one of the requirements to fly an experiment on the Chinese station is it has to be unique, meaning not one that is it can't be a follow up to one that had flown on the International Space Station. It has to be one that has never been flown before. So, you know, with with, with that in mind, um, you know, you're you're probably going to see some unique investigations coming coming out of there. But are you going to get the same level of 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 sharing and and of of data sharing um, that you get out of the ISS? I don't know. I have my doubts. Um, Kat, I'm probably you, you'll you you probably have some thoughts in that area too. And that's always sort of the concern, right? You know, it's fantastic to see China doing this, and it's fantastic to see more and more people uh, in more and more countries that are making space research such an integral part of, of their push in space, because obviously nations go to space for many reasons, and research isn't always one of them. But anytime you have uh, scientific experiments or research coming from China, there is a concern about the accessibility of data, um, concern about the validity of results sometimes. Um, so yeah, I, it's really just going to depend on, on, you know, who's doing the experiment, how much control the actual PIs or the, the investigators are going to have, um, how much access they'll have to the, the Tychonauts who were doing the experiments um, because we know that that is something China is very well known for tightly controlling access to their, their programs. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. You know, I really, really hope that uh, the space laboratory that happens on the Chinese space station will follow in the steps of the ISS in terms of open openness and accessibility and sharing of results, but I'm not going to hold my breath. Yeah, I don't think any of us are going to be holding our breath for that. But uh, again, we've got people in space right now. If you've never heard of the website, how many people are in space right now dot com. I mean, it's kind of self-explanatory what it does, but I can't remember the last time I've seen that number in double digits. And right now there are 10 people in space as we speak. So that's pretty darn cool that we got seven at the ISS and three at Tiangong. Yep. And, um... I will I will just throw in a, a plug for uh, 
since uh, you know we are coming up on uh, U.S. Independence Day here, I'm just going to throw in a plug for us um, uh, and a, a reminder that we now have an entire generation that has never seen the flag over at Building 40 um, get uh, get removed from the top of Building 40. That flag has been flying there. When you see a flag that's flying over at uh, 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 Building 30 at the Johnson Space Flight Center, um, that is where the Mission Control Center is located. And uh, that flag indicates that there's a, a U.S. astronaut uh, on orbit or in space right now. And that thing has not has been flying since uh for about 20 years so that i'm just just gonna throw that out there for everybody to to ponder we we don't we there's a generation alive today that has not known a time where the united states did not have uh a human presence in in space so just just ponder that for a minute anyone born within the last 20 years yeah. doesn't know that it's that's amazing yep and uh well pretty soon we will hopefully have a new vehicle that can launch humans into space and that is the much anticipated long-awaited <laughs> depending on who you are i guess <laughs> on the anticipation the space launch system or the sls uh which the main stage uh the core stage finally arrived uh to the kennedy space center and is now mated to the two solid rocket boosters and ladies and gentlemen we are stacking the first ever sls rocket yeah give that one that gives me goosebumps because this is a, a launch vehicle that as you have said it sawyer we've been waiting for for a very very long time oh i just wanted to say i have really enjoyed the time lapses and the videos and the pictures coming out of this and i'm always like trying to just give people scale because if you haven't been inside of the vab or been on top of the vab you know it can be really hard to conceptualize just how big the space is you know it's the largest single story building in the world it's huge it's just ridiculous. So I'm always doing Twitter threads like, you know, it might just be hard for you to realize because even though you might see people for scale in those pictures, you know, you just cannot understand the the massive size of the building that it's being stacked within, which then gives you an idea of the massive size of the rocket, which is just very cool. Um, I know that's a bit of fangirling over big rockets because, I mean... I like big rockets. <laughs> Who wouldn't fangirl over that? <laughs> but uh, but it's really so, you know, before getting into the fact that finally good to see this happening because it's been a very, 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 very long time coming. Lots of uh, program overruns, lots of money. Um, and I'm, I'm really good, glad to see it because, you know, regardless of what you think of SLS and there's lots of opinions out there. The fact is, is that this is a rocket that will enable deep space missions and more deep space exploration is needed. I mean, look at how New Horizons changed our very understanding of planetary geology. You know, imagine the ability to send more of those missions out in a way that they'll reach their destination quicker. So regardless of what you think of SLS and there's lots of think pieces out there, rocket to nowhere, everything, you know, it's a good thing to have 
something that has this much power because it enables so much um, in terms of scientific discovery and human exploration. Kat, thanks for saying that because, quite frankly, that's what that was the promise of the Saturn V too. Uh, it was hoped that 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 vehicle would would go ahead and and do exactly some of the things that that you're describing. And unfortunately, due to politics, the way it was at the end of the Apollo program, uh, it it did not have that chance to to you know, come to that. Uh, have all that happen exactly and one thing you know that sls has going for it now that saturn 5 couldn't is you know we talked about this when you were talking about watching the the launches at roscosmos and just how incredible the images that the roscosmos feed offers well i don't think that new horizons well one scientifically it had so much more um purposes because when it was launched but the ability to to see space now in a way that we were not able to see space in the Apollo era, in the Saturn V era, is just ridiculous. And it makes an impact having those images. So, you know, I, I know that this might not sound and might not make sense to people because we sort of think in terms of like money and, you know, what are we going to learn from this? And there's always some pushback when you spend money on science and space because people don't really see the impact of it. But one thing that makes it easier now is that when we send missions, we send them with cameras and we send them with eyes and we can actually see what we're learning, not just the reading the papers that may not always translate to a common audience that may not always translate to a taxpayer, you know, like, Oh, well, what's the point of this? But, you know, when we send back an image of something like Pluto and it has a heart, you know, that affects how people think about it. And we might not recognize um, the, the impact of that. Or we might not see how important that is, but, you know, when you have, a generation of kids growing up being encouraged to go into STEM fields, first of all, and then having images like the ones that we have of Pluto or that will, you know, come back of Bennu or, you know, the Juno cam that almost didn't even exist on Jupiter. Those do impact that generation of STEM professionals and can help them to design the missions that will conduct the research that will change our understanding of the universe in which we live. So I just think it's, you know, I'm, I'm very hopeful, you know, despite all of SLS's issues and problems, and, and we have many shows where we've talked about, we've talked about that, but there are some really good things going for it, that whatever missions it launch, those missions will launch not only some of them with people, but they will launch with our eyes to explore the universe and they'll launch with cameras and they'll launch with the ability for us to see where we're going and they come back quicker because of how big the rocket is. Yeah, exactly, Kat. I mean, one of the things that uh, possibly, you know, you mentioned Pluto. One of the things that, that SLS could theoretically do is to launch a Pluto orbiter and get there much faster than the New Horizons flyby did. Uh I mean, you're talking getting out there in, you know, what it took, uh, what, about maybe, I want to say, what, about 10 years to get to uh, to Pluto as far Nine as New years, Horizons? Nine years, yeah. Nine years? Okay, thank you, Sawyer. Um, I think SLS could accomplish that mis mission in half the time. 
So if that gives you any idea on how quick you could probably get a uh, a Pluto orbiter over there, and you know another thing too, I'll add, we only saw really one hemisphere on Pluto. We we didn't get a look a good look on at the other side, uh, because of again the way the spacecraft was flying by. So what who who knows what's what's on that the, the other side of uh, of uh, that tiny little world. And it would be kind of neat to go ahead and and have a um, oh I don't know a uh, a Jupiter um, or a Galileo or a Cassini like mission in and around a uh, an outer solar system body you know like Neptune like like Pluto like like Uranus and and all of that where where we have not really really looked at and that's really and Kat you alluded to this that's really one of the promises that, that SLS brings. Not and I, and I can already hear, you know, everybody yelling and screaming, but you know, let's let's use this we have this tool now. Let's use it to its full full capability. And that's that's basically what's in that the vehicle assembly building right now. I am very, very eager to see it launch Artemis One with uh with the new um, uh, test mannequin on board, uh, named after uh, Arturo Camp- Campos, I believe, uh, who was a um, uh, who was instrumental in the return of uh, of some of the of the uh, the Apollo thirteen crew. He played a critical role in that. Um, that that uh, mannequin was just named, uh, I believe, today. Uh, th- there was a whole poll. The whole contest, and uh, and that particular name won, and I was kind of gratified to see somebody, a historical figure from within NASA, getting uh, getting uh, some accolades for the job he had done to uh, to return uh, the Apollo thirteen crew uh, home. So it's it's kind of it was kind of neat to to see uh, to see that. But um, um, Artemis one is just going to be the beginning. And uh, it's it will not just take crew to the moon, but it will. But SLS is is going to be a key to, um, as you alluded to, Cat is is to exp- exploration and exploring the entire the entire solar system and and pushing out further. So, um, I'm I'm looking forward to seeing what the United States is going to do with this new tool that they have in the toolbox. I agree. And it would be a real shame to waste all the money spent on it by not doing all of these things. <laughs> We've got a large sunk cost Bravo. into SLS. So yeah. let's let's make it worth it. Exactly. Um, right now, I think think the, the in, they're, they're envisioning SLS flying maybe uh, uh, once a year or, or even twice a year. Um, and everybody's yelling and screaming, well, the flight rate and all this. Well, here's the deal. If you, if, and I think we've talked about this on the, on, on the show once or twice before. Uh, if you look at the flight rate of the Saturn V after Apollo 11, it was also twice a year. So I, I, I think that's what they're shooting for, um, to get this, this vehicle to fly, um, you know, twice a year, uh, to Gateway. Uh, but if it's needed to do other things and, uh, you know, knock on wood, it's going to be called on to do those things. 
Um, I, I really, really do hope so. Um, because I think it's going to be, be an incredible tool that, that this country is going to have an incredible capability. Listen, I, I know that I'm foreshadowing a bit some of the conversation, but you know, there are, there are some, um, very rich people out there just giving away their money Mackenzie Scott. Um, and it'd be really cool if she would just like to fund a few deep science mission i'm sure there's lots of pis who would just love to expand our knowledge of the universe if they had um some unlimited cash to do that <laughs> subtle hint yeah i'm the good doctor <laughs> <laughs> i'm with you by the way but <laughs> yeah, just just a check for all of us for each of us how about that <laughs> well, i'm going to oh. some icy moons if you give me a check yeah there you go <laughs> And I'm I'm sure uh, there's a couple of PIs out there that would say, yeah, sure, let's do it. Exactly. <laughs> Speaking of uh, opportunities to do a lot of science, on today's recording date, June 30th, 2021, SpaceX launched its second transporter mission called, conveniently, Transporter 2, uh, which brought up 88 different satellites to space all at once. However, it was originally supposed to launch on June 29th. However, it was scrubbed really close to the last possible second because of a red range. In other words, a helicopter flew into the 20-mile keepout zone that it's not supposed to. And uh, SpaceX CEO Elon Musk had a little something to say about that, and it wasn't aimed at the helicopter pilot. It was aimed at the FAA? Yes. Uh, Elon Musk basically uh, thought that the FAA's rules for the 20-mile keep-out sphere in and around a launch site were kind of antiquated, and he felt that the um, that should be looked at. And, of course, the uh, uh, you know, chorus of, uh, uh, you know, his, his grand chorus chimed in, as usual, um, I'm not too sure that's the FAA there with that regulation. That actually might might be, and somebody should could could check me on this. But that might be the uh, the forty that f might be the forty fifth space delta too. Yeah, my under of. my understanding is that the eastern range, especially that particular portion of the eastern range, is under control of Space Launch Delta forty five, formerly the 45th space wing and uh the faa my understanding all they do is they just grant them the launch license although they do post the notums the notice to all airmen uh to notify them of the keep out zone right and this helicopter um unfortunately uh caused straight into that zone and unfortunately caused the uh the issue i think the faa is actually investigating as to uh you know what happened with that that helicopter and and uh why it's straight into the zone because again you know the, these things are are published you know weeks you know days ahead of time so the pilot should have should have known a little better um i'm still remembering um you know i i, I I want to use uh, the same words that uh, were used uh, in another um, Antares delay um, where uh, the uh, pilot, where the, uh, where, where a uh, captain of a, of a 
boat straight into the area and uh uh one um uh at the time one orbital sciences official basically referred to him as a boat operator because he thought captain was you know gave him a a sense of uh responsibility i think that was frank culbertson when he was working with uh with uh, orbital sciences at the time um but uh uh, yeah, it, it, so my bet is, is, you know, instead of, but instead of venting at the pilot of the helicopter, he decided, you know, Musk decided to go ahead and vent at the FAA, which I think was probably the wrong answer there. Um, and, and basically saying that the whole thing was, was antiquated and should be, you know, we looked at because, you know, it, you know it, 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 he should have been able to launch at that point and my 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 thought is the rules are there for a reason dude you know you you don't just change them on on the cuff that that hard and fast rule has been there for for decades and uh there's a reason for these rules and, and i should it's... point out that at the moment elon musk and the faa are not on the best of terms after the sn8 launch out of boca chica uh, which violated their FAA launch license and sparked an investigation. Yeah, and uh, I believe um, uh, Joey Roulette, uh, Roulette or at the Verge had a had a very good uh, article about that whole whole uh, episode. So um, if you want to go ahead and and take a look at that, by all means, please. Um, he 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 wrote a rather comprehensive piece on that whole thing and uh you really really gave a really gave the company a, a little bit of a black eye if you will for not uh, following through on 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 the faa regs and i kind of wish uh you know um, mark was here to to kind of go into uh, uh that a little bit more in depth for us but uh um again i'm just going to say that the rules are there for a reason and and they're they're not they're there for uh to maintain um, the safety of those in the air and on the ground, and uh, and a, a note to Elon: if you know, I I fly you know model rockets, and uh, if I go over a certain certain altitude, I need a license for to launch that model rocket. Period, and uh, that's just the way it works. Um, I'm I'm not launching anything that high powered these days, you know, especially around here in Jersey, you can't do that. But, uh, uh, just, just for the fact that you wouldn't get your rocket back because of the, the, uh, uh, we, we don't have that, 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 that large wide open spaces that, uh, a lot of other States have, but, uh, uh, a anyway, I, I digress. Um, so yeah, Elon is just, just not happy with the FAA right now. I think he's just venting. I think he's just being, you know, he's just frustrated about the whole thing. And, uh, I don't know, maybe it just feels a little picked on, but, um, I'm just going to throw this out there. You know, I'm, I'm sorry, but I'm sorry if the rules are uncomfortable for you, but that's just, you know, the way things are. And, you know, you can't always have your have your way. I mean, safety is safety, and and when I hear a um, a CEO of a company that is dedicated to safety and literally um, 
when it comes to crew safety in the Crew Dragon, they have the part numbers with the crew with the crew member's name on it that you know the seats go on and 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 the um uh you know the suits everything like that when they go to that great length to go ahead and worry about crew safety and then the CEO of the company turns turns around and says this um i i i just find that a little troubling completely understandable and uh, again, like we've been saying, I don't think we can hammer the point home any more than we already did, but it's there for a reason and it's there for safety. While we're talking about Elon Musk, as we are recording, there has been a uh, a bit of an interesting discourse that has been going on on Twitter involving SpaceX CEO Elon Musk and United Launch Alliance CEO Tori Bruno. And... Uh, uh, this is going to be a thread, so bear with me, and I will do my best <laughs> to convey this to a listener audience that can't read the tweets. And Kat and Gene, there have been some updates since we last discussed, so this will be a live reaction in some way, shape, or form as well. Sawyer, should I get like the soap opera music organ and start playing that in the background when you're while you're talking about this? <laughs> start going with the Days of Our Lives theme or something in the background. And okay. Soap opera music, yeah. All right. So, again, Cat Gene, be prepared to respond live because there have been some updates. Uh, okay. It started off with a tweet by Elon Musk that said, Rapidly reusable rockets, RRR, in which a reporter, Michael Sheets, then asked Elon, Is SpaceX spending more time or money refurbishing the Falcon 9 boosters between launches, or is it just cleaning and inspection still? Adding, I know 10 reflights was the expected milestone for needing significant refurbishments. To which Elon replied, Work needed between flights is less and less, as shown by shortening time between reflights. Required work between flights for Starship and Super Heavy is zero. Uh, to which another person replied, tagging ULA CEO Tori Bruno, asking three questions. One, can you compete with this? Two, do you fear Vulcan might be dead on arrival? That's their new EELV. And uh, three, does Vulcan have some other advantages? To which Tori simply replied, yes, already have one over 30 missions in regards to competition. Uh, then said no in regards to if it's dead on arrival and many when asked if it has other advantages. To which Elon Musk sent a few replies. He said, quote, ULA would be dead as a doornail without the two-launch provider DOD, Department of Defense, requirement. If this is not true, then you won't have a problem removing it. Your parent company, Lockheed, darkened the skies with lobbyists to ensure F-35 was single source. Seems a little consistent. Adding, Now, this sort of nonsense happens all the time with government contracts and everyone knows it. However, in this case, it is money diverted from making life multiplanetary, which is the goal of SpaceX, versus the ULA goal of, ma of maximizing dividends to Lockheed and Boeing. Not okay. Tori Bruno has now since replied to this, adding, quote, Competition is healthy for the industry and customers. Our nation is better off for having the broader industrial base we now enjoy as a result. I congratulate you on your considerable accomplishments. We are also proud of ours. Well, Tori Bruno is <gasps> okay, keeping space it Karen. classy. <laughs> <laughs> Did I'm say, sorry, okay, Kat, go space ahead. Karen. 
Yes, I did just say, okay, Space Karen, because <laughs> first of all, first of all, kudos to Dr. Emma Bell for that moniker. Um, and also, as Jean mentioned, like Tori Bruno is a masterclass in how to engage with the public on Twitter, especially as the CEO of a large company like ULA. But it is not the job of the DOD to make humanity interplanetary. It is also not the job, Elon Musk, for them to enrich you to do that. The job <laughs> of the DOD is to protect the American people. And so to do that, <laughs> they need to launch payloads that are important to national security. You know, it's... I just... Oh, I cannot even. It's just... And as you guys know, like right before the show, I, I saw that the Dornell tweet and I was just like, this to me is really, really rich um, for this comment because we've talked about this on the show and I always try to drive it home to people that, you know, we sort of, we look at SpaceX or we look at ULA and we look at, you know, these companies and we think, oh, you know, what a great person or company that achieved this. And it's just not true. The U.S. taxpayer pays for this so much of, of what goes into space, even private company was funded in part or even wholly by the U.S. taxpayer. You know, SpaceX would not be the company it is today if not for the significant investment by NASA through the 2009 American uh, Recovery Act that gave money, then started the programs for commercial crew and commercial cargo. So much of what they were able to develop and how quickly they were able to develop it is because they won contracts. So yes, of course they deserve, you know, as, as Tori Bruno rightly pointed out, like you should be proud of your accomplishments. SpaceX deserves praise for what they accomplished, but they were able to accomplish that because they were able to win contracts and be funded and get that money. You know, so this is, I just... I, I just get upset when I see, you know, someone who has as much privilege as Elon Musk get on Twitter and make statements like this that just completely distort the reality. You know, yeah, ULA gets a lot of government money and yeah, they had a monopoly on the contract for a while. And, and there are arguments to be made about how government spends its money. It doesn't matter where it is. There's always arguments about whether or not it is um being spent in the best way if it's pork barrel whatever there's always that there there's also side note a big argument that one of the reasons nasa is so successful and has been called by others within the space policy research that nasa was basically a jobs program and one reason why nasa succeeds is it still gives money back into the economy in every state in the united states and even gives back money to other nations through the the partnerships you know that they make like it strengthens our international ties with other people outside of the United States. And it allows space to be a, a multinational endeavor. And, you know, so we get investment into our space economy. Elon Musk gets investment into his economy from from partners from all over the world, not just from the US. But I always try to come back to this point that companies like ULA, companies like Lockheed Martin, you know, who he mentions here, the F-45s, companies like SpaceX, one of the reasons they exist is because of the U.S. taxpayer, because we pay our taxes, 
That money is then used to run our government and our government reinvest back into American companies in order to produce the things we need to have the way of life that we enjoy. SpaceX was funded in the amount of multiple billions of dollars for commercial crew and commercial cargo contracts. And now they've won, you know, we've talked about this on previous shows, they've won billion dollar contracts, you know, multiple billions of dollars contracts for lunar lander architecture. So to act like you're not a recipient of of the same thing that you're accusing ULA of is just very rich to me and it's very disingenuous and I have no patience for it. And then to go on and claim that somehow ULA is preventing our species from becoming interplanetary because they're taking money away, it's just it's just wrong, it's disingenuous and it's just a bad way to be. You know, no one appointed Elon Musk like we didn't get together in the UN and say, hey, you know, we really need to make the the humans interplanetary. And while there's a lot of arguments for, you know, what can happen, what we've done to our world, and it would be a good thing to make our species have an ability to inhabit other worlds, there's a whole lot that's just... I mean, this is not going to happen in our lifetimes. We're not going to have a colony on Mars in our lifetimes. And also, I really hope that we don't call it a colony. If Musk gets there first, we're going to do that. And that's a whole other episode to talk about, you know, this sort of languages and, and power paradigms within inhabiting space as a human species. But it just, this makes me angry because it's not productive. It's just creating controversy. And he's doing it, I think, for attention. And it's just not good. And it's going to misinform a lot of people who take what he says as gospel truth. And it's just wrong. And I do have to call, I, I looked at this tweet. There is um, Fred, is it Fred Lambert? Had a really great sort of reply saying, talking about this. And and so I really encourage to just anyone go look and see the the tweet thread that he had responding to this. And, and he pretty much was like me and was like, first of all, this is not the DOD's, you know, responsibility to make the humans an interplanetary species and enable you to do that. So, sorry, I went on a little soapbox there. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. But I'm just, <laughs> I'm not having it. Like, that to me is just, you know, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Elon. Don't be a space carrot. And... <laughs> Hats off to and hats off and kudos to Tori Bruno for handling it with class and grace. And let us all be like Tori and not space Karens. <laughs> I, I I can't add anything to that. I mean, that's that that was was quite similar to to my thought. I'm, my thought was, um, if it weren't for the U.S. taxpayer, aka NASA, who stepped in. Back, you know, way back when, when you know Falcon ones were still blowing up over Quadrilene, and showed Elon, okay, maybe you might want to do X, Y, and Z, and of course the the last Falcon one attempt worked because of what NASA had kind of told them to do. If it weren't for that, you know, there wouldn't be a SpaceX. And Elon Musk has basically acknowledged that fact several times over. Um, whether whether or not you know he he honestly believes that um, you know, without the subsidies he'd still be doing what he was doing, or without NASA's you know writing the check for a lot of these things, um, yeah, that's I I don't know, but. Uh, 
you know, my, my thought after hearing that was like, well, there's the pot calling the kettle black um, because he, he's basically accusing ULL, ULA of doing the same thing that, that, that SpaceX has been doing all along. And um, I will, and again, I'm not, I, I'm I'm not going to go ahead and and belittle the accomplishments that SpaceX has done. They have really really shaken up the entire launch industry. Exactly, Gene. Like no one needs to. SpaceX is great. Like I'm a huge fan of SpaceX and what they've done. You know, I'm a huge fan of ULA and what they've done. I'm a fan of space companies in general. We want SpaceX to be successful, and yeah seeing starship like if they're able to get that concept if they're able to do what elon wants to do it's fantastic it's good it's great but yeah just the hypocrisy is too much for me yeah i mean and right now um the the company's uh ability to get starship up and going is inexorably linked to our return to the lunar surface now and taxpayer money I'm exactly. just saying, you know, taxpayer money. Yeah, you have the idea. Yeah, you've been doing some testing on your own, but you would never get that without, again, billions and billions of dollars invested into this company by the U.S. taxpayer. And I just, I, I know I keep saying that, but I just want to drive that point home that, you know, we, we stay on this and we have this, like, no one goes to space alone. And it's sometimes hard to conceptualize what we mean by that. But one thing that I really want to drive home to all of our listeners, and it doesn't matter if you're in the U.S. or you're in Australia or, you know, wherever you are, if you are paying tax, more than likely part of that money is going towards some sort of partnership or something that's happening in space. And so you are a part of this, you know. And for the U.S. in particular, because we have such a huge space infrastructure and we have a robust space sector, it is supported by the U.S. taxpayer. And the taxpayer makes money off of it. You know, we invest the the, the economic um, estimates, you know, there's a range. But for every dollar you invest in just NASA, I'm not talking about other you know, because we also invest money in, in, in other areas. But just in NASA, for every dollar invested in the economy, you're getting 7 to 14 back um, into, into the economy as a return on the investment. Um, if you look at other programs like GPS, for instance, that the savings and the income and, and all things that the GPS program Every year is like $42 billion back into our economy in terms of GPS helps trucking save time on the way that they go and, and deliver goods to us. It's just, it's an incredible, you know, space is a good investment. It has an incredible return on our investment, but it just, I know I try, I'd say this a lot, but I just really want to drive home the point that, that the U.S. taxpayer is sort of the first and most significant investor in any space company that, that we have that's going on these sorts of contracts that's doing DOD or that's doing NASA. Um, so I just, you know, just to leave it there, like just to say that I really think it's important um, that we hold people accountable for what they say. And when they make claims like this, it just really upsets me because, you know, Elon's not doing this alone. SpaceX isn't doing this alone. Tori's not doing it alone. ULA is not doing this alone, you know, and, and I would like to see more recognition of the fact that that 
the United States, because we have people in the U.S. that pay taxes and support the things that we do, are supporting these companies. So no, we don't go to space alone. We go to space because people have invested money. You know, that's when it comes to NASA, it's like less than one half of of one percent of your tax dollar. So like half of your penny is going to NASA. So it's just and then the NASA is paying, you know, billions of dollars to companies like SpaceX um to go to the moon. So it's you know it's your investment. So I'll leave it there. Sorry, I know I just <laughs> my TED talk part two, but it just <laughs> Now, Kat, you, you and I are on, on the same wavelength as, uh, as far as that concern. And, and quite frankly, I can't add anything else uh, to that at all. Uh, I mean, I'm right there with you. I mean, I, I really, really do think that uh, uh, it's high time folks understand, including, you know, the, the folks that uh, are, are really, really ultra supporters of 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 said company um understood that no you know this isn't elon taking money out of his pocket and doing all of this out of his uh out of his uh you know, ambition it is it is the u.s taxpayer that's funding some of this and 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 taking the lion's share of the risk and and in this whole thing. Which is why it's so important that, that we have oversight and programs, right? It's why it's so important that the companies we give money to are careful with what they do and don't take unnecessary risk because, you know, if you have lots of rockets exploding all the time, where if we, you know, heaven forbid lose a crew, you know, that affects whether or not we have future missions and affects how people feel about it. And so giving, uh, there's a really great example. So for instance, in the Czech Republic, very small nation, but they have a very engaged population who is really interested and engaged into their country's space program. You know, so they, they do a lot with a little bit that they have, but a lot of that happens because they have a very engaged population. So I think it's important that that we work to educate people like, you know, what are the cool things that we're doing with tax dollars, not just things that people like to complain about, but, you know, what is the significance? Like the average person, if you ask them like, okay, we're going to the moon, but what about people here back on earth? That's what they're going to say. They want to know what's the benefit. So being able to explain to people like, yeah, we take your tax dollars and we, we spend it on things like going to the moon, which you might not see is important, but which results in so much benefit on earth, not in terms of like it creates jobs, but also it creates technologies that help us in places on earth or help you in your daily life. So that to me is like a really important thing that we should focus on when we talk about this and we talk about the fact that we do spend billions of dollars on space. Like we should be interested in that. And when things like this happen, that can sort of make people turn off. And I don't like that. I want people to be engaged and interested and not see space as some sort of place box for rich people and rich companies, right? I want space to be seen as something that is accessible and available to people everywhere and that it benefits people everywhere. And so when we get these kind of arguments, I think that that can really hurt that. And it can have long-term effects where people sort of will turn off. You're all I'm going to say is preach it, sister, because because I, I I am right there with you. 
Uh, and that's and turning people off on this is is, is the last thing we really really want to do. We've got enough people that yell and scream, "Oh, we shouldn't waste all our money up there," as they tap on their cell phones and take their selfies with the little camera in, in there, um, and don't understand that that the technology that that are are helping you know them to to accomplish both uh, comes from directly from. Uh, uh, from from space, in fact, uh, you know, space touches us in so many ways we probably don't even realize it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm I'm just just going back to the to the argument. I don't I don't think what Mr. Musk was saying was kind of counterproductive in in the bottom line, and uh, uh, but it, it it definitely was was fodder for. Uh, for those who who are almost fanatical and in in and following them, and uh, kind of walk in in lockstep with them, yeah, cat. Next time you give a TED talk, I want to be there because that was dead on. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Which and and I and I hope 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 people take take note. And and took uh, took a lot of notice of, in that segment because, quite frankly, I thought it was quite powerful. Brilliant, if I do say so. I mean, that's yeah. uh, anything that I was thinking that that said it. the The only thing I will add is the term diversification. The Department of Defense is diversifying their assets, which is smart when you are dealing with the defense of an entire nation through the safety of space. You never want to rely on one provider, hence why NASA is also continuing to pursue Starliner, so that, God forbid, something happens with a Dragon, crewed or uncrewed, you have a backup way to get crewed to the space station that isn't through Russia. It's the same with the DoD. They have SpaceX, they have ULA, and now they even have Virgin as well, uh, starting with their Launcher 1 mission that happened actually on today's recording date, June 30th. Exactly, yeah, Sawyer. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you 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 nailed it, and I think you know the DoD is is taking a page right out of NASA's book, as far as you know diversification. Uh, you want you don't want just to put all your eggs in one basket. You want to have many baskets. So if one develops a hole, you can you can shift everything over to uh, to the alternate. Uh, sets of baskets and that's that's basically the way nasa's nasa's uh working and it's the same way that the department of defense and the space force and uh the the air force are 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 moving toward now and it supports a broader range of american jobs you know (laughs) if we're only funding one company you know then that's going to limit the the effect of our tax dollars so just you know diversification is important for redundancy but it's also important because this is this is our money let's support as many people as possible and as much innovation and competition as possible yeah i agree i mean that that's where all all, you know brilliant ideas come from because there are enough people that are trying to build a better mousetrap out there Mm -hmm. and they're, they're they're trying to go ahead and and figure out how to do things how to how to build better spacecraft how to build the 
um, better safety measures and so on. And having and to be perfectly honest, you know, the launch market is small. So we need to have multiple companies that are diversifying and specializing in different areas because, you know, it's not a huge industry. You know, it seems big now because the U.S. is so robust, but there is a limited market for launches. And so we need to have companies that specialize in orbits. You know, this is one thing like SpaceX is great, but one thing that, you know, you can't just rely on SpaceX because they can't get to every orbit. And so yeah. you have a company like ULA who has just a longer history and an ability to reach different orbits. And that's a good thing. We should bring in, you know, when you're having new launching companies, in fact, here in um, in Australia, Gilmore Space just got a very large round of investment. And I read a comment on Twitter, someone's like, yeah, but do we really need that? Because the launch market's small. And it's sort of like, well, the the areas you can reach launching from Australia are different than what you can reach launching from North America or French Guiana or, or other places. So it's really important to not only have diversification of ability to launch, but also specialization in different areas, because that means that there's places for new companies and places for innovation within the market. Oh yeah, I mean, I mean, you're talking about Gilmore. There, there's a company up in uh, in Maine, um, uh, Blue Shift Aerospace. Mm-hmm. They also just, you know, they're they're they've got a they're actually crowds they're actually crowdsourcing um, an investment program, and they've actually just just announced they they've exceeded that that investment. Um, and they actually now have their first uh, their first uh, uh, customer as well, um, you know, first major customer. So again, and and they and they are part of the small spacecraft and and small launch market, um, and which I think is going to only increase with the with the use of cubesats going forward. Um, but that's that's a, a a story for another another day. And Sawyer, you were talking about Launcher One, which again launched today, um, and I think that also is a significant achievement for uh, uh, Virgin Orbit. This was the uh, the second time that they've they've used that spacecraft. And for those those who who don't understand what uh, Launcher One is, it. Um, the only thing I, I can I can picture it is if you're familiar with the now Northrop Grumman um, Pegasus model, where uh, you have the Pegasus rocket attached to a uh, and a uh, an aircraft in L ten eleven, Launcher One is kind of the same thing uh, except uh, it's a it, it may be a little bit more more robust than the uh, than the Pegasus. And uh, which means it can carry a, a larger payload, and it uses a uh, a Virgin seven forty seven uh, to loft itself to uh, to the uh, release height and uh, and be launched from that from that platform. But again, this is just another quiver in the uh, in another arrow in the quiver, if you will, for uh, DoD and for uh, for uh, commercial entities that, that need a, a small satellite launched, and uh, my thoughts with uh, with with uh, Virgin Orbit were congratulations, and I I wish them uh, all the best continuing. Um, although uh, Richard Branson had some very interesting um, comments afterwards, so we're going to get into that just just at, toward the tail end of this thing. Um, both, uh, 
Brant, uh, Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos have been kind of sort of in a battle, if you will, to uh, to get uh, to get to space first. Uh, Bezos announced that uh, he and his brother, um, and I also believe they had uh, somebody um, win a twenty-eight million dollar bid to also be on that first flight. Um, they'll, uh, and I believe that they're, they're going to have a full crew, crew complement on board, uh, the new Shepard, uh, spacecraft when it launches, but Bezos wants to be on board along with, with said crew members, if you will, on that first launch on January 20th of this year, that announcement was already made July 20th, July 20th. Yes. To ref- January. Thank you. Um, think that. Thunderbolt hit my brain. Um, but um, anyway, um, a few days after that announcement, Richard Branson turned around and said, hey, we're going to shoot for July 4th um, for uh, for our piloted first mission and our paying first mission. And, and he's going to be on board that for uh for the uh, virgin galactic first virgin galactic flight so uh you know so now you've got this this little you know tay-to-tay going back and forth uh between the between the two uh you know billionaires that are going to be offering uh people with just way too much money in their pockets and and trying to figure out how to spend it um, a bit of a trip of a lifetime where you're going to go ahead and, and you know, have about 15 minutes of uh, zero G um, and come back down and just basically pierce the Carmen line and come back down. It's sort of uh, a replay of uh, Alan Shepard's first flight. Um, and uh, uh, anyway, Branson was asked um, by CNBC's Michael Sheets today, so are you really trying to go ahead and beat Jeff Bezos into space. And there was some laughter um, in the reply on that. And I believe Richard Branson said, Jeff who? So I guess that, that, that basically really, really lays down the table and, uh, and kind of throws down the gauntlet as far as where we're at right now with, with, with this whole thing. And the hilarious part about it is they're really just going to pierce the Carmen line. Um, of uh you know 62 miles i believe there's an x-15 flight um from the 1960s that's actually going to go higher than either two of these vehicles so i'm, I'm just throwing that out that one out there but it, it's it, it's it's just getting crazy out there with this and i just should point out before we go on the carmen line is the delineation that is most recognized internationally as the divide between space and within the atmosphere, which is, as you mentioned, 62 miles or about 50 kilometers. Yes. Thank you, Sawyer. And, but, but, you know, again, I mean, it, it's, it, 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 it's, it's kind of getting down to, you know, like, you know, nah, 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 you know, I mean, yeah, it's anything you can do, childish. I can do better. Yes, exactly. So, um, and, and then of course, everybody, no matter who it is, you know, we're going to have that same, argument yay new era and all that i just don't think it is yet to be quite frankly um to be quite blunt because I mean, it, it's, it's it's bringing up whole debates now of 
what is the definition of an astronaut versus a space tourist versus a million different names that you can come up with for it. It's it's tourism. It's not necessarily science in the sense that we think of with space flight. Yeah, I mean, honestly, in my opinion, there are zero G flights, the ones that do the parabolas, that get more science done than will get done in these missions. It's more of a way to show off your money and say, hey, look, I've got enough money that I can actually fly into space and call myself an astronaut or space tourist or whatever name you want to go with. Spaceflight participant, I think, is, there is what they've, they've tagged tagged this thing. And, and Sawyer, the, the, the analog that you just threw at me, I'm just remembering there was this, this when when Apple apps, the app store would just first opened up there was this one app that basically said i am rich and that's it it was just this little sign on your on your on your phone that you could deploy on there and the guy putting it up there you know i i think was selling it for like a thousand bucks a download and i think he actually sold like 10 of them before apple took it off but yeah i mean it's almost like a status symbol um, rather than than an actual, I don't know. It, it, it unless you're a researcher, I'd like to know more about about you know some of the suborbital research that they're going to do on board these things, rather than you know the the celebrity names that might you know be on board. I mean, we have such a great opportunity here, and I hope that both companies recognize that. I mean, already uh, new. Shepard has taken up some payloads on some of its test flights uh, for NASA, for schools, you know, for smaller organizations that might not be able to get a ride on a SpaceX or a an Electron or anything like that. But it's, I, I mean, I'm glad if it gets more people interested, but you have such an amazing science tool now of not just, you know, parabolas of zero g where you get 30 to 60 seconds at a time you got 15 straight minutes of here you go you've got zero g or you know microgravity if you want to be technical have at it let's see what science you can come up with and you know maybe give away some seats that way as opposed to oh you have a quarter million dollars great here you go come on board yeah fancy suit to go with it yeah, exa- exactly. And don't forget, sounding rockets part is also part of that uh, that equation. Although the sounding rockets, a lot of them fly a heck of a lot higher than uh, um, than either of these two craft are going to going to go. So, and it's not downplaying their significance. Obviously, commercial oh, no. space flight is the wave of the future in a way. It's something we've talked about for years. Of oh, you know. If you go back to the early 1900s, it was, oh, we can take a plane off and have it land after it travels about 40 seconds, uh, whereas now the length of that first flight is less than the width of the wingspan of a Boeing 747, and within 60 years we were on the moon. So I guess it only makes sense that people assume that next step would be making space flight as regular as airplane travel which again started off as only available for the rich and well off and now any joe schmo can buy an airplane ticket yeah but i think we're going to be a very very long way from that point i i you know that's i i don't see um that opening up to you know john and uh, jane q citizen anytime soon 
um, or even an orbital flight. Um, I, I just, it's, it, it's not going to happen. Not within the next 10 years. I'm, I'm maybe thinking a, a little further out than that. I mean, it took a good couple decades with airline travel as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, even when we did get to the age of Concord for the years that we had that, that was also, you know, it was there, but it was only for the really rich and exclusive who could afford that type of price for the ticket. I feel like we're getting the same kind of deal here. It's, yeah, I mean, it was great for the business traveler, but most of the time the reason you would fly on Concord is because you could. And I think that's where we're at here. Yeah, I agree. Totally agree. I can't add anything else more than that. Exactly. So we will see, though, who wins the Battle of the Billionaires. Indeed. And with that, I think that's the perfect place to bring this episode to its conclusion. I'd like to thank everyone who joined us here tonight. Thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka. Thank you, Sawyer. And unfortunately, um, we have two um, sad uh, things to report to our, our listeners. Um, one is um, a longtime supporter of the program, um, Shannon Blackburn. Uh, lost her mother uh, recently, and uh, Shannon's been such a uh, a real good <laughs> supporter for this program. She's been there since uh, this program started in in September of two thousand nine, and she's she's still been a a huge uh, proponent of what we try to do here. Um, so I just wanted to go ahead and acknowledge. Uh, the loss of uh, Shannon's mom and saying that we're all with you. And um, Kat, I'm going to go ahead and, and have you uh, um, tell the uh, the second one because it, it, it kind of breaks my heart even further um, because uh, we're talking about somebody that uh, uh, shared this, shares this microphone and is welcome back at any time. So um, Kat, why don't you go ahead and do that? So you all know of our as she likes to call herself the fifth beetle, but uh, Cassie Tamanini, a.k.a. Craftlass, um, lost her father this past week. So she's uh, been down uh, in Florida handling all of that and certainly has spoken to me many times about how much she appreciates her space tweet family. Um, so, you know, we're sending our condolences to her and her family as she um, deals with the loss of her father. Indeed. And uh, again, the the whole Talking Space family here uh, sends deep condolences to both the the Blackburn and the uh, Tamanini families. So again, um, all of you are in our thoughts. We send our condolences and our love. Absolutely. And uh, yes, thank you as well for joining us, Kat Robinson. Yes, thank you so much for for having me and coming to my TEDx Talking Space Talk. I can't oh, wait man. to sit in the next one there, <laughs> Doctor. Thank you. Will you be staying afterwards to sign autographs? Please. Yes, yes, of course, always. <laughs> okay, great. So with that, and I'm I give them away episode... for free. <laughs> <laughs> well, then I'm going to end this episode quickly so I can get my copy before you leave. But in the meantime, exactly. thank you for Same joining here. us. And as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are. That was a good one. <laughs> Oh, man.